Grace Family Church of Rhode Island presents Word of Hope, a sermon series with Pastor Luciano Cozzi. Welcome. The Word of Hope sermon series is a ministry of Grace Family Church of Rhode Island. It was instituted to bring sound teachings from the Word of God to as many people as possible. Our purpose is to offer you a message that is both practical and contemporary, that brings the Word of God to light in a way that makes sense in daily life. As you listen to this message, it is our hope and prayer that the Lord will bless you through it and bring you hope, comfort, and guidance. And now, Pastor Kotze. Well, brethren, the passage that we are addressing today is not an easy passage. And it would be easy for us to, very easy for us to misunderstand it if we are not careful. One way not to misunderstand this passage is to look at it in context, but this time the context is not so easy because the context of this passage, in order for us to be able to understand it, it's not in the verses around it, it's not in the chapter It's actually in the entire letter of Romans, plus a few of the other letters of Paul. So the context that we need to look at is the letter to the Romans in its overall, as well as the theology that God shared with us through the Apostle Paul, through other letters, to clarify some points that he makes here. Of course, I cannot do all that in a very short time. It would be taking quite a long time. And I would like to share with you something else before I launch into what I hope will be a clarification of this passage, that the body of Christ is supposed to work together. And this is one beautiful example of that. I am quite grateful and indebted to a theologian, one among us, Gary Dedo, and our many conversations together for a lot of clarifications. And by the way, many other people are indebted to him for clarifications. God has given him quite a brilliant mind, a mind, that, however, that does not want de- to depart from Scripture in favor of human ideas. And that's the one thing I really like about this man, who is also the president of Grace Communion Seminary. And a lot of the material that I'm sharing with you today comes from those discussion and conversations which turn out to be also uh, shared with other people in an article. So why do I say that? Well, first of all, I want to give credit to where credit is due. We are all learning from one another. But also to reflect on the fact that the body of Christ is indeed supposed to work together. The gifts of one helping the other. And in this case, we're being helped by the gifts that God has given this particular man and others around him that also contribute to this journey that we're all in. So it may be something a bit new for some of us. It may be some, some ways of looking at it that is a little bit different from what we may have heard in the past, but we praise God for growth. And hopefully, 
hopefully will manage and prayerfully manage to clarify this passage in a way that is not confusing. However, I would like to premise that this time the task is not easy. And so I invite you to pay close attention because it may be a bit of a trip. And it may be a little more difficult than usual and may be a little more technical. In some ways, I'll try not to make it that way, but it may be a little more technical than usual. First of all, we are all engaged in a lifelong journey. I think we know that. And I think we know very well that we are in a journey of growth. All that we need to do is to look at the mirror to realize that we're not perfect yet, right? We need to look at ourselves to realize that we are in a journey of becoming who we truly are in Christ. That we are declared to be in Christ. And it's beautiful, and you can find it in Scripture, and we can understand the way God looks at us, the way he sees us. But we also see ourselves, and we see where we stand in in our journey, and we realize that, yes, that is what God sees as a completed work, but we are not there yet. We will be there, but we are not there yet. We are in a journey of becoming who we truly are in Christ. And it is a journey made possible by Christ or in Christ by the Holy Spirit. And I want to clarify that very well, very clearly, because it is not something that goes like this. We are justified by Christ while we are sanctified by our efforts. That is not the biblical teaching. That is not the case. And yet, even yesterday, I heard people preaching that. Well, it is not the case at all. We are justified by Christ. We are sanctified in Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit in us. It is God's work in us. And what is our role? Well, our role is to take part in that work, is to be willing in that work and participate in it. Uh, But it is not our work. It is his work in us. It is a journey which we trust the one God who has promised to complete the good work that he started in us. So here's a very clear concept that, at least in my mind and from Scripture, is very clear. It is not our work because he's the one who started it and he's the one who's going to complete it and he's the one who's going to carry it in us uh, and through us all the way through. So definitely it is his work in us, but... It's not something that will call us to laziness, spiritual laziness, or to holding back, or to just simply do nothing. We are called to take part in it. Yes, from start to finish, this is a work of God. It's a work of grace producing us by the Holy Spirit in Christ. And the good news about that, it is a work. This is a work that is conducted in his time, in his space. You know how many times I hear myself and others around me being in a hurry? Oh, we are in a hurry. Of course, we are in a hurry for our own growth. We are particularly in a hurry for the growth of people around us, (laughs) right? Because that affects us in a different way. God, how long are you going to take to make my wife grow or my husband grow or my friend grow? Or my child grow, (laughs) right? 
But we are all, it seems to me, kind of in a hurry. And yeah, God, God is not anxious about that. God is not nervous about that. God is not in a hurry. God takes the time that he sees fit and wisely chosen for us. It is not a one-size-fits-all type of situation. The Holy Spirit works individually, personally, in us, in his own way, in his own pace, at his own time. And that time is measured for us, for what is best for us. So many of us will start at one point and others start in a different point. That's okay. He knows. Many of us grow at a certain rate. Others grow at a different rate. But that's okay. It's his determination that causes that difference because he cares about you and me, all of us, individually, personally. And I think that's very much good news. But as I said before, it is a work in which we're called to participate actively and deliberately. This is not a participation that comes automatically. We are to deliberately participate in that, take part in it. And Paul addresses the concept of participation, for example, in many places, but for example, in chapter 5 of the letter to the Romans. In chapter 5, where it tells us that just like death spread to everyone because of our participation in Adam's sin. You see, Adam sinned and brought death into humanity. But then it's not that we die because he sinned and we have done nothing. We have all participated in his sin. And so in a similar way, we are called to participate in the life of Christ. Just like we have participating in the death and in the sin of Adam, we are now called to participate in the life and the righteousness of the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And so the concept of taking part of it and be part of it active part and deliberately participating in it is brought up by Paul in a previous chapter. It's not passive. It's not a passive existence. And that's very, very important. In chapter 6, Paul reminds us that in Christ we're dead to sin and alive to God. And I many times use the metaphor and explain that, you know, someone who is dead is definitely not active. But someone who is alive is definitely active. The definition of death, in fact, is the absence of activity, isn't it? You, you look at an individual, there is no cardiovascular activity, there is no brain activity, they are pronounced dead. So if we are dead to sin, but alive to God, well, we already get the picture here. We are supposed to not behave, not act in the old way of sin, but act and be alive and be active in God. And he, Paul, reminds us that the gift of God in Christ is eternal life in his glory and in the fullness of communion with him, of which then he talks about in chapter 8, the chapter after the passage that we just read. However, it is very clear also, and he makes it clear in this passage of Romans seven fourteen to 25, that we had not yet arrived in this journey. We have not yet completed the journey. Together with creation, you see that in chapter 8, together with creation, we still groan within ourselves, longing for the fulfillment of the promise, longing for the day 
when we are going to be completed. Our journey is finished. We're completed, and therefore, we no longer see ourselves falling short or in our weakness. Well, we groan in that anticipation. But while in this journey, we're called to resist the devil and to flee temptation. Again, it's not a passive journey. It's not that, you know, here I am sitting down and then, okay, God, if you want me to go somewhere, you've got to pick me up and drag me. No, he invites us to walk with him. We had a moment ago from, from Peg, our sister, that illustration of walking in the Father's footsteps. I think it's a beautiful illustration. He doesn't want us to just sit there, standing there, okay, you carry me if you want me to move. No, it's just, okay, I make the path for you, but you walk with me. And so we take part in that walk, in his walk, in his footsteps. And he makes us able to do so as well. So we're called to put off our old way of being, which, by the way, are inconsistent with who we are in Christ. And we are called to participate actively instead in being who we really are in him. Which means that we take an active part in our sanctification and in the redemption of our human nature. And here I need to pause and explain a little something. I don't want to go too deep in that. But one thing we need to understand is that in the Greek, this passage is a... And the previous and subsequent passages are a little more clear because there are several words that are being used in reference to us. One of those words that Paul uses here is anthropos. Anthropos means this, they could, the condition of being human, our humanness, our humanity. Anthropos can be defined as what makes us human in difference uh, or in comparison or in opposition to what makes other things other things. For example, we are not animals, we are human, we are anthropos. We are not minerals, we are human, we are anthropos. We are not plants, we are human. So that condition of being human, that humanness is indicated by anthropos. But that condition of being human is common to every single human being. Because it's who we are, we are all human. And in this passage and elsewhere, Paul uses that to mean that his condition of being human is still weak, is still subject to temptation like everybody else, like every other human. Unfortunately, in the NIV and some other translations, sometimes that is mistranslated and is mistranslated into me or I or my nature or sinful nature which in that case kind of confuses a little bit. But there are other Greek terms that to point to the individual and who the individual is. For example, I may share with all of you my humanity, my anthropos, my condition of being human, because you are all human, but you are not me. So when I say I, I don't mean us. I mean I. The individual me, myself, what makes me distinct from you, even though we share in common that humanity, that humanness. Yes, we are human, but you're a different human than I am. And in the Greek, there are specific words that are used for that. 
And so sometimes in this passage, Paul talks about himself as the individual, as the person, as the will, the individual that he is, separate and distinct from other individuals. But in some other points, he talks about him, his humanity that we all share, the humanness, the anthropos that he's talking about. All right. Hopefully, that should be enough of technicalities about this, but we will come and put it all together in just a moment. Now, we are called, as I was saying a moment ago, to actively participate in the redemption of our anthropos, in the redemption of our humanness. We share all together our humanity, and our humanity is weak and subject to be tempted and to sin. But God is redeeming that. God is changing that. God is transforming that in us individually. So we are individually called to participate in that transformation, in that growth of who we, how we, maybe I should say how we are human, right? How I experience my humanity, which I share with you, but how I subjectively experience that. I'm supposed to participate in that redemption, in that transformation, taking something that is currently still weak and still subject to temptation and sin, and one day it will be completed in its transformation that will no longer, because there will no longer be any sin, there will no longer be any temptation or any such thing. That redemption will be completed. But I don't need to tell you that you know that very well and i know that very well that at times we fail to do so we still sin in our thoughts in our words in our actions and even though we have a new identity in christ and now when we talk about identity we don't talk about necessarily the anthropos that we all share but the individual who i am is found in christ my humanness is shared with everybody else but who i am is found in christ and even though we find ourselves in Christ, even though we define ourselves as being in Christ, we still act contrary to that, in opposition to that, we sin. And if we are not careful, now here reading Romans 7, we can make the mistake to understand it as saying that we have two natures, that we have two selves, a good one and a bad one. That idea actually does not come from the Bible. It comes from Greek philosophy, the dualism of the Greek philosophers of ancient times, that somehow through some of Christian philosophers penetrated into Christianity and unfortunately in some ways have become a little more popular than they should be. One cartoonish illustration, a little angel on one side, a little demon on the other side, battling within us. Do this, not do that, do this. It's almost like there are two selves, two I, two me's battling within inside me. And if we're not careful, we could look at this statements of the Apostle Paul as something like that. Like he has two selves fighting within himself, two individualities, two ways, two natures within himself fighting. But that's not what he's saying. Why do we, why do we make a big deal of that? Why do we say that it is not two opposing selves at war against each other within Paul? Because if that was the case, first of all, Jesus' incarnation would make no sense whatsoever. And that is a theological statement that I will explain to you 
in a, at a different time if you want me to. I don't want to take the time right now. But also, you and I would be without hope. Because we would constantly be exposed to two natures, equal and opposed to each other, fighting within us, and we have no, no way of sorting that out. But you know what? That's not the case. And who we are in Christ is so much bigger and greater than anything else that we do absolutely have hope and a way out of this paradox that sometimes we create. So Paul addresses one self, himself, one nature, not two opposing ones. And what we fight against, what he says he fights against, that are opposed by, we are opposed by, is defined by Paul as the power of sin or evil. The power of sin does not define us. It does not define who we are. But it takes advantage of the weakness of our humanity, the weakness of our humanness, of our condition as humans that we all share, to tempt us to sin. However, that is not intrinsic to us, to who we are. And especially that is not intrinsic to who we are in Christ. So as strong as that temptation may be, Paul looks at it in a very interesting way. Looks at it as something alien to him, to himself, to his individuality, to who he is in Christ. The power of sin that resists our living in Christ is absolutely not equal with Christ. Christ is much greater, and in him we absolutely have victory. It just says sometimes we don't see this victory yet because, like I said before, we are still in that process of sanctification, of growth, of transformation. Transforming what? Redeeming what? Redeeming what we all share, that humanness that is weak, that is being redeemed, being redeemed as we speak, as we live in Christ. Because of what? Because of who we are in Christ. You see that personal, individual identity that we have in Christ. And that's where the battle is. Not because we have two natures, not because we have two individualities within us, not because we have a little angel and demon fighting inside us, but because we still share in our natural condition of human, our humanness, that is weak. It's one person, one nature, one individual. Okay? Not two. Notice the words of the Apostle Paul in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 7 of Romans. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Notice the wording in there and how beautiful that is, by the way. Notice that Paul makes a distinction between himself and the sin at work within him. It's almost like he's personifying sin in order to make the point. And the point that he's making is that the tension that he's experiencing within himself is not between two selves, but the contrast between the Paul, who Paul is, the I or the self, right? And the sin, which here is presented as a force working within him so that we can understand it. But here Paul says, that his one identity that he has in Christ, and notice, by the way, not two separate identities, one identity that he has in Christ, is maintained even as he confesses that he does 
what he does not want to do. Look at the wording again. It's very important. I, yeah, I do the things I don't want to do. Because I find that sin is at work in me. But I don't want that. So Paul makes a choice. You see, Paul takes a side. And the side that he takes, it takes the side of who he is in Christ. That is his individual state. He knows who he is in Christ. And it's there, and he says that, who I am. I don't want that. But I have a weakness in me. And therefore, I end up doing the things I don't want to do. Now, Paul takes responsibility for sinning. He's not presenting an excuse here. So don't take it as an excuse. Let's not walk out of here and say, well, you know, sin works within me, but I don't want to, so whatever, you know. Uh, it's not me, it's something else. With, okay, wait a minute. You see that where the error comes in? It is not me, it's something else within me. That's equal to saying it is not my Godly nature is a sinful nature in me. That becomes an excuse for me to not take responsibility for what I do. And that's not what Paul does. Paul takes responsibility. Because he doesn't say, I don't want to do it, but something else in me does. And no, he says, the things I don't want to do, I do. And he tells us the reason for that. It is he who sins when the power of sin tempts him but he, end up, he ends up doing what he, as a believer, does not want to do. So there is still a position, there is still a choice, there is still an, an identity that he maintains, his identity in Christ. Notice in verse 21, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. Now notice that Paul individually wants to do good but finds that evil is present in him. And that is because our human nature is not fully yet redeemed. But it is being sanctified in Christ, and that is a lifelong process, which for Paul, as well as for all of us, was not complete yet. It is not, however, a split self, but rather something alien to what Paul is in Christ something that is a work in him because of the weakness still present of his humanness that we all share. Verse 22 and 23, For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of a law of sin which is in my members. Notice here that Paul, who he is in Christ, joyfully agrees with God's ways. All right? Paul is not an individual who says, ah, God's way is not a good way, my way is better. No. He joyfully agrees with God's way. Notice also the sin here is presented as a law. That means a principle or a power, right? That is a war, meaning contrasting with the principles of his inner man or his mind of his identity in Christ who he is in Christ but Paul does not have two identities he knows who he is in Christ and that he is singular that is sing his singular identity who he is in Christ and it's based on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for Paul and obviously for all of us 
His identity is coherent. And it is because that identity that he has in Christ that he is in opposition with what he defines as the power of sin that seeks to take advantage of his not yet fully redeemed humanness or human nature. At this point, Paul then asks a question, a very important question. Verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? And it is with that question that he introduces not only the end of chapter 7, but also chapter 8, with all its beautiful affirmations of who we are in Christ. Remember, there's no divisions of chapters in the letter that Paul wrote. That question now introduces what he's about to say, not only in the end of chapter 7, but in all of chapter 8 as well. And you know, you've read chapter 8 many times, and you know how beautiful those affirmations of who we are in Christ and our destiny in Christ, how amazing those statements are. It is a rhetorical question that points to the answer that we all need to find, the answer to our question and concerns about temptation and sin, and the answer is given in verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other hand, with my flesh, the law of sin. All right, now this could be really grossly misunderstood. It could be grossly misunderstood because if we allow this duality within us, Paul sounds here like he's justifying and minimizing sin and say, hey, you know what? With my mind, I serve God. With my body, I serve sin. Eh, no big deal. That's not what he's saying, though. There's no duality there. Paul here is not minimizing or justifying sin. Sin is wrong. Sin is deadly. And just before, in the previous chapter, it says, should we continue to sin then because grace is so abundant? And he says, God forbid. That's not what I'm talking about. He himself wrote, that is not what I'm talking about. So if we understand it that way, we misunderstand the whole passage. What Paul is stating here is that Christ is the answer. Christ is the one in whom the good work was started and who will bring it to completion. Christ is the one who's going to deliver us from the wretchedness of our human nature. Christ is the one who's going to complete that work of redemption of our humanness to transform us from who we were to who we are in Christ. We are being sanctified, transformed by our sharing through the work of the Holy Spirit in us in the work of redemption that Jesus Christ is doing, is performing, the work of sanctification of our human nature. But he's not lying to us. And while he's not justifying sin in any way, he is admitting that, look, we have this problem. Because in who we are, in Christ, we want the ways of God. But we fall. We stumble in our weakness, in our humanness. And therefore, we need to trust in full faith that Christ is the answer. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord is how I'm going to be set free from the body of this death. 
And the death he's talking about is the death of sin. So how do we cope with our transitional nature, if we want to put it that way, that is so vulnerable to temptation and sin? We are called to fight the good fight. And this is not being passive, but very actively involved. And so how do we become involved when we find that our weakness and our exposure to temptation ends up prevailing in us? And therefore, we end up doing the things we don't want to do. Or thinking or saying what we know we shouldn't and would not want to. Well, Scripture tells us to do three things in particular. First, confess the truth to God and repent. Yeah, confession and repentance. Don't cherish that sin. If, if I find myself... In that position that Paul describes, where I am end up doing the things that I really don't want to do. I know there is a choice at that moment. I know that that choice plays a role in that. And we'll talk about that some other time. But ultimately, the inner man, who I really am in Christ, does not want that. But if I find myself thinking or saying or doing something that is sinful... I shouldn't cherish that, should I? I shouldn't dwell in it and say, oh, how good it is. Because now you're calling evil good and good evil. Now we're turning things around if we do that. And that's not us. But we have to offer it to God. For what? So that he can destroy it in us. Because he will destroy sin in us. We are to trust in God's forgiveness and grace and know that he's quite eager to renew our communion with him. So sometimes people find themselves in sin and they isolate themselves from God. They isolate themselves from everything that would encourage them to to go back on that path. And that's a mistake, a serious mistake. Because in our weakness, we need that. We need one another to encourage one another to righteousness. We need Christ. We need our communion with God above and above all and above all things because it's in that oneness, in that communion, that we are transformed by Him. Second, realign your thinking and resist sin. You know, sin finds its power in the past, in who we used to be and what we used to do and all the things of the past. And you know, the more time we spend in that past, the more time we are exposing ourselves to that weakness. And that's why Paul says, leave the past behind because it is forgiven and it's crucified with Christ. And instead, put your eyes on the things above, on the things that are coming, on who you are in Christ in its fullness. Because that's your real identity. That's who you really are. You don't share two identities. You have one identity. That's why you say, Paul says, the previous who you were is dead, gone, right? It's no longer there. It's dead. Who you are in Christ is alive. And so point to that. Realign your thinking. Think of the things that are coming, not of the things that have been, because as long as we think of the things that have been, there are two things that happen. First of all, we become slaves of the past, slaves of that sin, and also we start questioning God's forgiveness and start beating ourselves down like crazy. 
almost as if by our own penance we can do better than Christ. We can't. It's not our work, remember? It is his work in us. We participate in that actively, yes, but it is his work in us. And my penance, your penance, cannot add anything more to what Christ has already done and is doing in us. Jesus and the Holy Spirit want us to be aligned with our future, with that future that we have in him, that this, that inheritance that Paul goes on to describe in chapter 8 in the very next few words from this passage that we read today. Paul immediately goes into that picture. And he wants us to move in the direction of who we are in Christ, toward that awesome future. So realign our thinking. One way to realign our thinking is to realize who we are in Christ. Three, surrender to the working of the Holy Spirit. So confess the truth to God and repent. Realign your thinking and resist sin. And then surrender to the working of the Holy Spirit. Paul often reminds us to, think, to seek the things above, where Christ is, not the things of this world. That means that we are to put to death our former practices, the former ways. Why? Because they're totally inconsistent with who we are in Christ. They don't fit. They may be consistent with who we were, apart from Christ. But we are new in Christ. Remember that statement? Our redemption is indeed the work of the Holy Spirit, but time and time again we are reminded in Scripture that we are not to be passive in that. So we're not asked to take over, but we're asked to be part of it. Notice the exhortation, the exhortation of the Apostle Paul in the previous chapter, and we'll close with that for today. In Romans chapter 6 and verses 12 to 14, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Because... We are under grace. We are called not to live a life of sin because it's not fitting. It's not consistent. It doesn't belong. We're called to deliberately side ourselves with Christ, with the work of the Holy Spirit, by directing our lives in the direction the Holy Spirit wants us to take. Sharing more and more fully in the redemption of our human nature, our humanness in Christ, and as believers, we can do that because of who we are in Christ. Those who belong to him and live in and by his spirit and his word. I hope that's been helpful in clarifying a difficult passage, a passage that can be easily misunderstood. But I also hope that is helpful in reassuring us and directing us in the right path. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you. Thank you for the work that you are accomplishing in us. Thank you for your wisdom that determines how fast, how quickly, and how you are addressing us and our weakness and our nature. We thank you for your redemption. And 
Yes, Father, we looking forward. We long to see the time when the work is accomplished and when all that you have promised and all that you have stated and our identity in you will be fully accomplished and present. It's going to be such a glorious time that through the Apostle Paul, in the very next few paragraphs, you inspire him to remind us that it's going to be so awesome that all of creation will benefit from it. But here we are. And in our frailty and our weakness as humans, we want to surrender to you, Father, and ask your forgiveness and your redemption to be very much active in us, to sustain us, and to guide us in your path. Because that's what we want, to be faithful to you to the very end. So we praise you and thank you for it all and commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have not yet received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, but you desire His forgiveness and grace and would like to have a new, meaningful life rich with purpose, well, now is the time to make a decision. You may wonder what you should do. The answer is quite simple. You receive Jesus when you believe in Him and trust in Him and Him alone to save you. You see, he has given his life for you, taking your sins upon himself on the cross. And he did that to save you and give you a new life to spend with him in his glory for all eternity. First of all, acknowledge your sins and your need for the Savior. Repent. Be willing to change and turn away from your sins. Start listening to God and do what he says instead of seeking your own ways. As you are repentant, then believe that Jesus died for you and after three days, he rose from the dead. Then ask Jesus to live in you in the person of the Holy Spirit and to be the Lord of your life. Next, if you really mean it with all your heart, talk to God and tell him about your repentance. Tell him that you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord and ask him for his forgiveness. You don't need to talk to him with special words, just open your heart to him. Talk to him as if you we're talking to someone that you know and see right in front of you. If you need some help, then pray with me. But pray with all your heart, sincerely, as if these words were your own. Dear God in heaven, I confess to you that I am a sinner. I have followed my own selfish ways and I have grieved you. I have done what is wrong and I have sinned against you. I need your forgiveness. Father, I thank you for the fact that Jesus has given his divine life for me. That he cares so much for me that he took upon himself the pain and the death that I deserve for my sins. I accept Jesus Christ as my personal Savior and his sacrifice as payment for my sins. I ask you, Lord, to rule my life and to guide me so that I may live in a way that pleases you. I invite you, Lord, to come into my heart. I want to trust you and follow you from now on as my Lord and Savior. 
And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, my friend, find a Christ-centered and a Bible-believing church and join the body of Christ where the Lord Jesus will guide you and lead you in your new life. God bless you and yours.